Epistaxis is one of the most common emergency presentations to ENT in the UK, with a patient presenting to in-hospital ENT teams every other day on average. It's equally common to present to ambulance staff, and whilst the blue light response to a nosebleed might be something that you roll your eyes at, very often this group of patients are distressed and can be quite unwell. This month we're talking about the varying causes of epistaxis, the types of patients that it affects, and our top tips for getting that bleed stopped on scene, as well as some of the more specialist tools that might be required to help us. As for when the next time is that you'll get to use this knowledge, well, who knows? And whilst you're all recovering from that hilarious pun that uh, I've spent ages working on, just before we start the episode music, there's a slight addendum to this podcast, which we'll come on to later. But why are we making this addendum, Alex? Sorry, mate, I I can't hear you. Say say that again. We got something wrong. A little bit louder, mate. I I, I don't think the listeners at home can can hear us. (sighs) We got something wrong. Yeah, so we we made a slight error in this podcast, which happens, you know, we're not perfect and we're learning as well. And uh, thanks very much to uh, Matt on Twitter, who brought that to our attention. Uh, we've gone away and we've done a little bit more learning. Uh, and so we're going to address that addendum at the appropriate point in this podcast. So if this is your first time listening to it, uh, hopefully us admitting to uh, getting something a little bit off the mark hasn't put you off, please do carry on. But if you are coming back for the addendum for the update, then you can find that skipping ahead to minute 40. All right, let's get on with the podcast. Ambulance general broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hi and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this month we are tackling the subject of epistaxis. And hopefully this episode has caught your eye because it's something that uh, pre-hospitalists go to incredibly often. It's an incredibly common presentation to urgent and emergency care practitioners. And it's something that has a varied degree of severity when it does present to us. So equally, it's something that we could be looking to bring a bit of common sense and first aid knowledge to and discharge on scene. But equally, at the other side of that spectrum, there can be those patients that are bleeding very heavily, have been so for a long time, and now need some form of resuscitation and potentially some airway support. And so, Alex, you took the lead on this month's episode. I imagine it's been quite an interesting one to research, hey? Yeah, it has actually. It's something that, as you said, we see quite a lot on the road still. Um, anecdotally, we seem to be seeing less of it in in recent months, perhaps the sort of last 12 months or so. But yeah, still, it's still very much prevalent in the community and it's something that we see a lot. And I think hopefully we can do something to help in terms of hospital admissions and just reinforcing the kind of the first aid treatments and uh, things that we can do to help in these patients as well as discussion of uh, of the more serious cases is it anecdotally you don't see it anymore alex because you're a manager now <laughs> <laughs> no do you know <laughs> no do you know what the reason i know that is because one of the staff told me <laughs> <laughs> am i gonna have to cut that out to preserve your dignity <laughs> yes please <laughs> I don't have a lot, but it could do something to protect what I do have. <laughs> uh, well, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not promising anything. One of the things I'm really looking forward to is learning a little bit more about some of the things that happen in hospital and some of those in-hospital treatments that, working on the road, we don't really get to see a lot of the time. So with that in mind then, let's get started. Alex, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the prevalence of epistaxis? What kind of people suffer from it and, uh, and and how common is it? Yeah, definitely. So I've been through and pulled a lot of uh, data uh, in preparation for this podcast. And one thing that I found was really interesting was looking at data internationally. The numbers of epistaxis that reported are 
I wouldn't say identical, but they're very consistent. And several large international studies, Cochrane database reviews and metadata analyses, have estimated that epistaxis affects at least 60% of the population globally. But it's estimated that only 10% of these require treatment from a healthcare professional. And that makes sense. Lots of people get nosebleeds and, you know, they're generally self-limiting and don't need much in way in the way of intervention. But in the UK, hospital presentation data for epistaxis, which I've pulled from something called the Hospital Admitted Patient Care Activity or HAPCA reports, show that since at least 2016, which is where I went back to, the numbers of epistaxis admissions have remained surprisingly consistent. 24,964 in 2019-2020, 24,600-something in 2018-19, and 24,141 in 2016-17. So in that five-year period, there's been a slight increase, but uh, the numbers are, are remarkably consistent. And one of the things which is probably best known about epistaxis is that it has a bimodal distribution. So it can occur at any age and it does occur at any age, but there's a bimodal distribution. So on the article on our website, you'll see there's going to be a little graph that I've put together. And really you get two spikes on this graph, one between age four, uh, sorry, age zero and age 15. Although certainly it's very unusual to have uh, an epistaxis below age two. But in those early childhood years, there is a spike in the prevalence and very much after the age of 50, that's when you get our largest spike. It's very, very common after after age 50, and particularly as we get older into the sort of 80 to uh, 90 age bracket. A peak incidence is around 75 to 85 years. Adults aged over 50 account for 40% of those patients requiring medical attention, and the more serious instances that we're going to talk about do almost exclusively tend to happen in this age group. Some data that I found from a 2018 retrospective study in Scotland uh, that looked at over 20 years worth of data and accounted for nearly 55,000 epistaxis patients showed that epistaxis more commonly affects men, uh, around 55%, and that surgical intervention for epistaxis has also increased significantly over that sort of 20-year period that that report looked at. And those numbers as I said, they, they are very consistent and those percentages as well, patients who identify as male, 55%, and uh, patients who identify as, as female, 45%. So it is a problem that is out there in the community and it's something that ambulance clinicians and pre-hospitalists are definitely going to see. Excellent. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the pathology and causes then. So most epistaxis is self-limiting and it's harmless. And a lot of patients that suffer epistaxis, we're not going to come across because they will uh, manage it with first aid interventions. But the times that we are going to come across it is if those first aid interventions haven't solved anything or if they're particularly problematic causes for, for epistaxis. So Often the exact location and cause of the bleeding remains unidentified. And we're going to talk about the differences between anterior and posterior epistaxis in a moment. But let's have a little look at some of the causes. So guys, I have learned a new word today. Uh, and it is the most common cause for epistaxis. And that's rhinotelexis. Do either of you guys know what that is? Never heard of it. Oh, come on, Simon. Rhinotelexis. I have, but why don't you tell me what you think it means? <laughs> well, I think it's mining for nose gold, Alex. And uh, yeah, that's probably one of the top causes for somebody to develop an epistaxis uh, is going to be localized trauma. So yes, that can be from a facial injury. They've been decked uh, outside the pub, um, caught a square one on the face. Uh, it could be that there's a foreign body lodged up there, but uh, a lot of the time, it's going to be someone that's been rooting around, having a good old dig, uh, and it caused a bit of localized trauma to uh, some of the mucosal membranes there. The next would be idiopathic, which means they don't know the cause or, or there's not a clear cause for uh, for the epistaxis. And again, there's probably a, a huge crossover in the Venn diagram between uh, idiopathic causes and then uh, nose pickers that don't want to admit to it. Uh, inflammation, either from infection or uh, sort of allergic rhinosinusitis so uh runny nose essentially from whatever the cause whether you've got a 
a respiratory tract infection or really bad hay fever. Localized inflammation uh, is going to increase the risk of epistaxis. And that's why the prevalence of it is higher in the winter, presumably, because there's more respiratory tract infections going around. Neoplasias is another one. So either benign uh, or malignant growths within the nose are going to increase somebody's risk of, uh, of, of bleeding. Iatrogenic injury either from surgery or insertion of, of, a, uh, of a medical device, so an NG tube or an NPA is potentially how we might cause iatrogenic injury to the nose. Obviously, if you're, if you're inserting anything that's not normally there, there's a risk of causing trauma to, uh, to these sensitive mucosal structures there. Uh, Alex, do you want to reel off the rest of the list? So as well as uh, sticking things in the nose that shouldn't be there, there are potentially structural problems, septal deviation, perforation of the septum, and linked into that potentially as well are problems related to drug use. So that could be prescription or drug abuse. So just because someone has uh, drug-related nosebleeds doesn't necessarily imply that it's uh, abuse of uh, illegal drugs. Generalised hematological conditions, your coagulopathies, thrombocytopenias, Alcohol is a big is a big factor, and uh, organ failure tied into that as well. So liver and uh, and and um, renal failure. When people think about medications and bleeding, antiplatelets, anticoagulants, they're they're fairly obvious, and most paramedics might think of those. But uh, medicines like racutane and and some of those uh, other sort of acne medications, because the way that it works is it dries up the sebum on the on the skin, so it hopefully gets rid of your spots, but it also dries out other mucosal structures. Uh, such as inside the nose so uh, there's a there's a high chance of recurrent nosebleeds if you're on roaccutane and once you've got the bleeding stopped the the fix is often quite simple which is daily applications of vaseline to the inside of the nose but one one to think about particularly if you've got a an awkward teenager that's not particularly forthcoming with with what's going on in front of you Oh, there you go. I didn't. Uh, I didn't know that one. So I've learned something there. Um, another thing that people might think about is it's not the only use for copious amounts of Vaseline for your awkward teenager. But uh, we're not going to cover that in this podcast. <laughs> <shall we? laughs> yeah, that's that's a little outside of uh, what we were meant to be discussing. <laughs> so if I can just bring us. Uh, back out of the gutter there for just a second another thing that people might uh consider in terms of cause uh, or, or causes of of uh, epistaxis is um hypertension and uh simon do you want to talk to us about uh, hypertension and epistaxis yeah so i know for a fact that in my clinical notes before um i've written hypertension induced epistaxis and thought i was being rather clever and i'm sure i'm not the only one that was taught that there is a like causative link between hypertension and epistaxis is that something you guys have been taught josh probably by me at some point yeah <laughs> I, I, I was but my mentor was rubbish yeah yeah thanks it's definitely something i've heard yeah so actually the the, the evidence is a bit weird on this so there is definitely a lot of evidence that suggests that people that do have epistaxis also incidentally are found to be hypertensive but interestingly enough, there isn't any research yet that says that it's a causative link. So make of that what you want. But um, it would appear that hypertension at the moment hasn't actually been proven to cause epistaxis. Yeah, I suppose it's it's fair to say we're not we're not saying that hypertension doesn't cause it. It's just there's nothing there's there's no link that's been proven in literature yet. That that's that's the sort of uh, yeah, long and short, yeah. isn't it? So there's an association, isn't there? So the, the, yes, there is. I we'll we'll link to it. So there's a meta-analysis that I found by uh, Min Kang and Choi et al. that looks at a huge number of trials to to answer the question: Is there a link? What they concluded was that there was definitely a clear association between hypertension and epistaxis, but the causal relationship is is unclear so it's that whole correlation doesn't equal causation thing and so what they recommended was was larger trials i think realistically it doesn't matter much beyond that point what they said is there was huge heterogeneity between the people that they looked at and and equally you, you know if if you think about the two statistics that we've put to you in this podcast which is older people tend to suffer from epistaxis well they're also far more likely to suffer from hypertension aren't they in probably a distribution that looks very much like the back portion of the epistaxis graph. I think lowering hypertension is a good thing. If there's an association, 
that it reduces epistaxis as well. That's probably also a good thing. But uh, to me, from our perspective, looking at at it, getting past the point of is that association causative, it probably doesn't matter. What we can show in the evidence is that 85 to 90% of epistaxis originates from the anterior circulation of the nose. At the anterior portion of the septum, there is an area called Little's area, which is basically made up of lots of blood vessels that converge together into a plexus. And that area is Kisselbeck's plexus. This is the most common site where we're going to get bleeding. And actually, if we do uh, an examination and look up the nose, if we can control the bleed significantly enough, we might actually be able to see the source of bleeding in this Little's area. The plexus is basically uh, a confluence of vessels and they originate from the internal and external carotid arteries. So that's the anterior circulation, which is where most of the epistaxis comes from. So as I said, 85 to 90%. But occasionally, and much less commonly, you'll get posterior epistaxis. Uh, So that's bleeding from the posterior nasal septum. Here, the vascular supply is from the sphenopalatine artery and the terminal branches of the internal maxillary artery. These are usually much harder to, one, be able to find. Uh, You won't be able to visualise them with examination, and they're considerably more difficult to control. Yeah, posterior epistaxis is generally considered more difficult to control and is usually um, the site of more uh, severe epistaxis. Although, in recent times, um, studies have shown that there is very commonly an arterial uh, vascular pedicle in the superior portion of the nasal septum. So it's re- essentially, it's just behind the nasal septum. And there's a little point there called Stam's S point, um, which is a little vascular pedicle, uh, which often presents with quite significant anterior bleeding, usually found in men, around 70% of them are found in men, generally 59 years or older. Most of those people also have comorbidities. And that sort of feeds into what we were saying earlier about more significant bleeding happening in generally in the older populations. And actually, some of these bleeds from Stam's S point can be can be quite significant. In the studies that I've that I read, there was a predominance of bleeding in the left, the left nostril, and um anterior posterior bleeding being the principal initial presentation six patients presented with low hemoglobin levels and four actually required a blood transfusion so although posterior epistaxis is usually considered more severe and certainly is more difficult to control don't write off anterior epistaxis because sometimes they can be quite serious i'd imagine as well that um if you can't find an anterior source at little's area that this is probably a a good second place to think of. Yeah, it definitely seems to have reared its head in literature as, as something not to be not to be forgotten. I mean, these are um, papers which are intended for sort of e- ENT and uh, people routinely dealing with this. But um, I, I thought it was I thought I thought it was an interesting point that actually sometimes, you know, I, as you said, we tend to consider anterior epistaxis as being relatively minor, but actually sometimes they can be they can be quite bad. So as we've kind of alluded to, severe epistaxis is quite rare and mortality from epistaxis is even more rare. When it does occur, though, it's normally associated with either hypovolemia or a toxic shock syndrome from uh, prolonged nasal packing and is more likely to occur in people with comorbidities. And as you would expect, patients that are anticoagulated, so those that are on warfarin or on NOAX, there's a strong link in the evidence between an increased bleeding incidence. And we'll link to an Icelandic study that came out earlier this year that found a clinically significant association between warfarin and epistaxis compared to those on DOAX. So those patients that are on warfarin may bleed even more than those patients that are on on DOAX and, and have more severe bleeds and obviously greater challenges with resolving those bleeds from basic first aid measures. And along with the medications, we probably want to consider patients whose clotting and coagulopathy is um, not good from other conditions as well, like liver disease and alcohol, who obviously we, we know is going to affect their ability to clot. Yeah, and I think that 
takes us quite nicely into actually what uh, what should we be looking for in these patients presenting with epistaxis. So when we're talking about history taking, we should be paying attention to the amount of blood that's been lost, the quantity and the frequency of the bleeding. Has the patient had any history of nasal or facial trauma? And are there any other sites of bleeding or bruising? And that can be quite an important um, clue as to you know, if, if there is a, a, an underlying condition. Has the patient had any history of nasal surgery or are there any known coexisting conditions? What are the current medications, family history of bleeding and all those things that we should be going through for a, a decent thorough history anyway? But in particular, for epistaxis, one thing that is relevant is, is how long ago did the bleeding start? Which nostril is it coming from? Is it left or right or is it both? Now, if it is both... It's more likely to be posterior. That is also true if the bleeding is profuse, if the bleeding was first noticed down the throat, so if they've been swallowing a lot of blood uh, or if there is significant bleeding into the into the throat. And I've, I've seen this a couple of times, um, bleeding involving the lacrimal, the, the, the tear ducts, the lacrimal ducts. So if the patient is crying blood and they have an epistaxis, it's almost certainly a posterior bleed. Yeah, and it's um, if possible, we need to get a specific measure, although that can be really challenging. I know people have talked about egg cups. I know when Pathways Triage uses things like a mug or half a mug full of blood loss, which there, there's evidence out there that's really hard to estimate even for healthcare professionals. So as best you can or as best the patient can, but other things we can think about is if they've got tissues or if they've got like bandages and dressings and things that they've been holding onto their nose or bowls they've been leaning over maybe we could actually quantify it by kind of visualizing how much blood is 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 there we need to ask about what first aid measures have been taken and for how long and whether they were done properly which i think is really important a lot of people still hold the wrong place um, and i know later on we're going to talk about basic management of epistaxis so we'll cover it then but a lot of people actually hold the nose in the wrong place. Uh, we need to think about any packing that's been used. It's not always visible. Obviously, we've mentioned toxic shock. So some patients will insert things up their nose themselves in order to try and stop bleeding. So we need to make sure that's been removed before we put any further packing in and inquire about how long it's been there. And then, as I already alluded to about alcohol intake and liver disease, we need to think about their alcohol intake. Recent heavy binging or long-term alcohol use can affect clotting as i said and therefore you know can add to epistaxis so it's really important to take a, a good social history from an examination perspective that's relatively simple obviously we're going to want to do abc approach if our patient's really unwell so we're going to want some monitoring but obviously, if we're focusing on the bleed itself, we're going to want to have a visual inspection up the nose. That might mean we need to remove the clot so we can see what's going on up there. We also want to visualize the back of the throat to see if there's any uh, blood loss down the back of the throat. We want to inspect for any trauma. And one really important thing when it comes to traumatic epistaxis is to look for a septal hematoma. So Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about a septal hematoma? Yeah, so really simply, it's bleeding between the septum of the nose and the mucosal layers that overlie it. And if you have a septal hematoma, there's a risk of pressure necrosis to the septum. And you can end up with all sorts of complications with that. But, but essentially, the risk is that you end up with uh, septal necrosis and a deformity, outwardly visible deformity to, uh, to, to the outer structure of the nose. So we need to in, con in the context of trauma, so spontaneous epistaxis exempt from this, in the context of that guy outside the pub who's been lamped square in the face and now has an epistaxis, we need to visually inspect up the nose. Uh, looking for a septal hematoma and it'll be a red bulgy bruise essentially on the inner portion of the septum which can be quite problematic and difficult to see particularly if there's a lot of blood and, and clots up there and what we definitely need to do is document the absence of that so whenever I go to any kind of maxillofacial trauma that's one of the pertinent negatives that I'll always look to put on my my paperwork no septal hematoma because obviously the, the risk of missing that and the risk of that going untreated, which is fairly simple to treat and prevent the, the, the septal necrosis, is quite significant. So, so broadly, that's the history and examination. And then we need to consider some of the diagnosis and differentials. So Alex, do you want to talk about those? 
Yeah, so the diagnosis of epistaxis is, is relatively simple. Obviously, the patient's going to be presenting with uh, with bleeding from the nose. Although, you know, as we just discussed, there are some things that, uh, that that we need to look for. So simple, even I could do it. Exactly. Even Josh could do it. So if Josh can do it, there's no reason that you can't. One thing that we should consider in terms of differentials is children under the age of two. Now, it's unusual for children under two years to experience a spontaneous epistaxis. So we should give consideration to trauma. Now, that may be that may be accidental trauma, but under the age of two, unfortunately, as unpleasant as it is to think about, one of the things that we have to consider is non-accidental injury. And we should be aware that epistaxis in children under the age of two has been associated with uh, asphyxia, whether that's intentional or non-intentional asphyxia. Those patients who are presenting with an asphyxia-related epistaxis, they're going to have a history of things like pallor, cyanosis, some respiratory difficulty, changes in heart rate, all generally unexplained. And a history of uh, of what you might call a, an apparently life threatening event when a, when a child goes floppy and unresponsive, one of those very scary situations which I'm sure we've all all sort of been called out to, and there doesn't appear to be any any reason for them. So if there is a history of those associated with epistaxis in a child under two, it does it's not a cardinal sign that there is anything going on but it is something that should definitely be a consideration one thing to clarify i think that once there's a cause for an apparent life-threatening event it's no longer considered one that does that sound about right simon yeah absolutely so um i think you, you, you said it really well it's basically just that um there could be a history of children being discharged with uh, old tees or apparent life-threatening events as in their history but actually once you find a cause for it which obviously in this case as you're suggesting could be an accidental injury it's then no longer an ulti obviously an ulti has to be uh, a completely like idiopathic event so it's just worth making sure that obviously we're not kind of considering ulti as part of the symptoms of, of, of this it's a separate thing Moving forward with looking for uh, signs of concerning differentials, we need to be examining for symptoms suggestive of a tumour. So uh, patients that have been having regular nosebleeds, perhaps they've been stemming them the last few times and they've just been getting worse and worse. I'd be wanting to ask them whether or not they've been having any irregular pains associated with that. So face pain or nose pain, and um, particularly deep inner ear pain can all be suggestive of, uh, of an airway tumour or a nasal tumour. Combine that with weight loss being in the right age range, so over 50, occupational exposures to inhalants or, or inhaled carcinogens, nasal obstruction, so not talking about foreign body here, but physically feeling that you, you have an obstruction in your nose, and then rhinorrhea, ear, so constantly running nose or hearing loss can all be symptoms suggestive that they might need to be reviewed for, uh, for an airway tumour. As we've discussed, we need to consider whether or not they might have a coagulation disorder. So petechiae or purpura, uh, either on the skin or conjunctival hemorrhages might be suggestive of that. Hepatosplenomegaly or lymphadenopathy, uh, again, all might be suggestive that these patients have an undiagnosed coagulation disorder. So certainly something worth considering and, and working up if the history might suggest that. And obviously, you're going to be managing the epistaxis whilst you're doing all of this. You're not just going to let them continue to bleed and exanguinate whilst you're doing an abdominal assessment. That would be, uh, that would be not good. So with that in mind, let's talk about treatments and management. Yeah, so we've got a patient who we're fairly happy we've done an examination and, and they've definitely got a bleed from their nose. So what are we actually going to do about it? Well, the first thing, as always, is to think about PPE. Now, that's that's not me doing my usual sort of officer thing, um, but um, it is. this is a patient who we're going to have to have a look in their nose and throat, potentially. There's also a splash risk. So eye protection and the usual sort of PPE level uh, would, would be a sensible idea. And one thing that I'm quite keen on is the the sort of attitude and the approach to this. Now, remember that this can be a life-threatening presentation. Most of the time, they are not. But particularly in the frail or a vulnerable population, epistaxis can be life-threatening and sometimes can be fatal. So don't write off epistaxis as the job's passed to you or when you're told that you are going to see a patient with epistaxis. Don't write that off before you meet the patient because 
sometimes you can have a a fairly unwell patient on your hands. And in that case, when you have got a life-threatening or a significant bleed, they can present very dramatically in the sense that there's obviously going to be a lot of blood loss. And they that itself poses a risk, I think, of distraction and becoming task-focused in stopping the bleed. Now, it is important to stop the bleed, obviously, because one of the first things we're going to look at in, in an A2E assessment is to, uh, is to control hemorrhage. But it is important that these patients are managed using a standard A2E approach. So don't forget oxygen, IV fluid resuscitation might be required alongside attempts to control that hemorrhage. Okay, so we're here, we're on scene, we're in the house, and we've done all the usual things that we would expect to have done when approaching this patient. How are we actually going to help them? Well, I think that the first thing that's key, and is often the case overcoming the challenges in pre-hospital care a lot of the time, is to really start well and give yourself a, a good start. So that's where good nasal preparation is critical here. Don't try and apply pressure to a nose that has spent 45 minutes with pressure on and off and patients partially blowing their nose and partially doing it with a tea towel. And you've got all sorts up the nose that's very liable to move uh, and at all different stages of clotting. That's not going to go well and it's not going to be particularly easy for you. So if the patient is still hemorrhaging, clearly don't do this if the the bleeding is resolved. Don't try and disrupt your clots if the bleeding is resolved. But if the patient is still actively bleeding, let's get all of that old stuff that's currently up their nose and not allowing us to apply particularly good pressure out. So I get my patients with a bit of kitchen roll to just have a good blow, get those those clots out, you know, cough them up if they're hanging at the back of the mouth. Just get all of that stuff out from uh, fr- from in their nose and give us a good starting point. And if you need to support this with a bit of suction, bear that in mind as well. So a soft tip suction catheter might be able to get some of those particularly problematic clots out so that we can start to, so that we can start to fresh. Then we need to apply some pressure to cartilaginous aspect of the nose. So crucially don't, you're not applying pressure to the bony nasal bridge. And this is what patients do wrong quite a lot. They uh, they start squeezing at the bony aspect of their nose and they're not actually applying any pressure or they're applying partial pressure. So you're going to be squeezing on, on the soft bit. Now, the textbooks will tell you to do this for 10 minutes and then check again. My personal philosophy is we're just going to put this pressure on and we're not going to check it again for 20 minutes because the thing that makes nosebleeds go on and on and on is the constant checking, is the constant releasing the pressure. Is it still going? Has it stopped yet? And every time you release that pressure, you're disrupting clots and you're ruining any of the good work that that you've already done. So we're going to get this pressure applied and that can be done with the patient's own hand. Don't don't do it with yours unless you really, really have to because that ties you up. Or if you're working with a with a second colleague, you can get them to do it. But this can be done with the patient's own hand or even better if you can make a device that does it for you. Because as people's grip tires, as people get a little bit twitchy and a, a little bit angsty, they're going to be releasing this pressure. And as I've already said, that's what makes these things go on for a long time. So you can make uh, a device out of a tongue depressor. You can get two tongue depressors, tie them at the top with a little bit of medical tape, and then slide that over the nose a bit like a clothes peg, and that will apply your pressure. And then you can quite clearly see whether or not the bleeding is continuing, and you can in- inspect the back of the mouth to see if the bleeding is continuing uh, once you get them to lean forwards. And you're not reliant on anyone's hands getting tired. So hopefully you've got tongue depressors in your ambulance. Failing that, a large clothes peg would do the same principle if you're in somebody's house. Or one I've used in the past is using teaspoons to the exact same effect. So if you get two teaspoons, you put them back to back, put your finger in between them, and then tie some medical tape around that. You form yourself a a peg that you can put over the patient's nose and it works quite well. I'll put a picture on the uh, on the website and hopefully, no matter where you are, certainly in the UK, you're never that far from a couple of teaspoons. So you should always have something available to you. So we're going to do that, put that pressure on 
ask the patient to lean forwards. This reduces the blood flow through the nasopharynx and will help minimize that swallowing of blood. The issue if patients are swallowing lots of blood is that that's going to sit in the stomach and if you get enough in there, it's going to make them vomit. Vomiting increases the pressure in the head, the retching increases the pressure upwards and you're definitely going to restart the bleeding or worsen the bleeding. So get patients to lean forwards, get them to spit out any blood into a into a bowl, don't let them swallow it, don't let them take it back and keep them upright. Now, it might be slightly problematic and might be slightly difficult if they're feeling dizzy, if they have bled so much that you're struggling with blood pressure. But ideally, we want these patients to be sitting up because any other position where they're closer to being flat is going to increase that bleeding. To go along with this, we can use an ice pack. So I'm sure you guys have you used ice packs on, on your patients. Yeah, ice packs, peas, frozen sweet corn, the whole the whole uh, the whole freezer. Yeah, and so popping those either on the bridge of the nose or on the back of the neck. Now that's got two benefits in my mind. The one that most people will be aware of is localized vasoconstriction. So you're you're going to be inducing vasoconstriction from the cold anyway, and you're going to be limiting blood flow to the nose. But the other thing that you're doing for these patients, and potentially the more meaningful thing. I'm not quite sure if there is any evidence for cold-induced vasoconstriction in epistaxis, but certainly it theoretically makes sense. But the other thing that it's doing is it's actually very calming to have some cold around your neck in this situation. I don't know if anyone's had a nosebleed that's quite significant, but when it's going on and on and you're actually you're hurting yourself by uh, occluding the nose and it's not particularly pleasant, lots of blood in your mouth, it's a little bit difficult to breathe, isn't it? And you get hot and you get bothered and that's how people get panicky and that's how people are constantly getting into this cycle of checking, rechecking. Whereas if you're just calming them down and you're cooling them down and you're making them feel more comfortable, I think there's those additional softer benefits from applying ice to the back of people's neck, which is going to really give you a good opportunity and a good chance of stopping that bleeding. It's also quite handy if it's a Sunday and you're looking at doing a roast dinner. <laughs> we'll get those peas defrosted early absolutely yeah <laughs> as long as they invite you to stay hey and i think one final point that might be worth making around that because i've been asked this by students in the past is they they associate cold with worsening clotting so we spend loads of time telling student paramedics don't let your trauma patients get cold because you'll cause a coagulopathy and cold blood doesn't clot and all of that and that is very very true but that is a different context to what we're using cold here for uh, and in all likelihood this localized cooling uh, is not going to be having that effect on the blood you're not going to be causing a coagulopathy with with this kind of localized cooling over the time frame that uh, that, that we're talking about so th that's not a valid concern and not something we need to worry about so in my experience those first aid measures are normally absolutely successful and will will get you where you want to be the majority of the time after 20 minutes i'd slowly remove the tongue depressor device, slowly remove those teaspoons. If no one's made you a cup of tea by this point, then you can normally make a hint and see whether or not the the, the patient has started re-bleeding. As long as they don't make my tea with the bloody teaspoons. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you use a different teaspoon. That's a valid contribution. <laughs> That's the best contribution you've made all day, Simon, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Tea's important to my function. <laughs> But nine times out of 10, this is going to have uh, have been successful. So I think now let's talk about some of the pharmacological interventions that might be required, as well as nasal packing that we can consider if these first aid measures haven't stemmed the bleeding. So Alex, do you want to talk to us about topical vasoconstrictors? Yes, yeah, so I, I agree, Josh. Most of the time, these patients that we're going to be seeing, 99% of the time, these first aid measures applied properly and for a sufficient amount of time are going to work. Every so often, we're going to come across a patient where that doesn't work. Now, in my personal experience, this tends to be patients who are on things like warfarin. You can slow it down with first aid measures, but you can never quite get it to stop. And they'll sometimes keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And so one thing that I think is definitely worth having a think about is, is topical vasoconstrictors. Now, the use of topical vasoconstrictors for anterior epistaxis has been established for some time, but there's not a huge amount of data regarding its effectiveness. These are usually applied under anterior rhinoscopy. And 
in the UK, most ambulance staff, if you're working frontline in the ambulance service rather than in, in a hospital or in primary care, most ambulance staff are not going to be carrying the majority of the agents which are used for this process oxymetazoline, phenylephrine, cocaine even, or uh, epinephrine. Now, we do carry epinephrine routinely. Obviously, we do carry adrenaline. But one thing I did notice is that oxymetazoline and phenylephrine are used in quite a few uh, over-the-counter decongestant sprays. Now, if the patient has a decongestant spray, that might be something that that could be worth uh, worth a try. Um, certainly, as an over-the-counter strength, it's not going to do any harm. And and since those are the medicines which are used for vasoconstriction in this context, I don't think it's unreasonable to give that a try, as long as the patient's willing to uh, to get their uh, decongestant spray all covered in blood. But as I said, we do routinely carry adrenaline, and there may be some benefit to the use of topically applied adrenaline. There's two drugs, really, which, uh, which are usually discussed. One is adrenaline, one is tranexamic acid. But in terms of adrenaline, I think it's, it's something that we can think about, but it should be used in caution or considered in caution uh, in patients with hypertension or coronary disease as there there is a, an increased risk of complications. Now, one thing when we're talking about adrenaline, obviously we're normally talking about the use of adrenaline for either cardiac arrest or for anaphylaxis, but the legality of using adrenaline in this context, in, in the topical application for epistaxis, now it, it is legal. And so that's where we need to take a, a slightly deeper dive uh, and deeper look at that point. Is it legal? So, Alex, what what do we need to look a bit deeper at? In the episode, I was about to come in and talk about Schedule 17 of the Human Medicines Regulations, which is the part of statute in England and Wales which allows paramedics to give medicines autonomously, certain medicines. Now, the point that I was going to make was that the wording in Schedule 17 of the Human Medicines Regulation specifies that the medicines should be used for parenteral use. Now, my interpretation of that was the strictly literal interpretation, which is not absorbed through the uh, the enteral tract. And that is... That, that is right, isn't it? So that is what parenteral means. Yes, in, in, a, in a strictly... Um, in a strictly literal sense, that is what it means. But the widely accepted definition medically now is parenteral essentially means by injection to penetrate a, a mucosal membrane or the skin. And I think in our defence, that is not explicit in law, which it should be. And I think this is an example of exactly why medicine's law needs to be updated and needs to be changed because there are issues like this which we encounter fairly frequently which once they're clarified either by a court or by a body such as the MRHA are about as clear as uh, as an azure sky but until that point they are written very uncertainly using you know I mean they're written by non-medical professionals who are I suppose doing you know doing doing their best uh, to to describe a medical topic um and so that's where that error is so so what the situation is regarding the use of topical adrenaline it's probably not illegal uh, in the sense strictly that the law in England and Wales mostly covers the possession purchase and sale of drugs certain parts of statute do control parenteral administration of prescription only medicines but in the grand scheme of things when talking about non-parenteral administration what is controlled in law is the possession of the medicine and how that medicine is um, is acquired so whilst it may not be strictly speaking illegal to topically administer adrenaline what you may find is that this is a medicine which is given to NHS ambulance trusts for the treatment of sick and injured people and it is essentially within their power to decide how this medicine is to be given i think it's <laughs> i think it's fair to say sticking up for myself i think it's fair to say i was not entirely wrong it's not Ill, it's pro- probably not illegal but it is something which is going to be essentially within the gift of your employer so so whereas in the initial iteration of the podcast we were we we felt that it's entirely you know somewhat black and white that it's acceptable for us to use the medicine in this way what we're saying now is it's it's 
far more a shade of grey because, I mean, in, in just taking a deeper dive into this, I've found three potential interpretations of how you might class the topical use of of, uh, of adrenaline, whether it's parenteral or not. So it's far more muddy than that. So we just want to adjust the way that we are talking about the use of topical adrenaline, which I think, fair to say, Alex, we're probably saying now, don't just go and utilise this off your own back. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a drug which is used in this context it's used in this context in hospital and there's not a huge amount of literature out there supporting it it's it's more of a sort of um i I suppose common sense application but it's one that has been used frequently and for a long time so by doing so you're not doing anything which is going to cause a dramatic amount of harm to the patient and we're not saying that it's not going to work the issue is solely around the autonomous administration of topical adrenaline. It may be that your employer is absolutely on board with the use of the medicine in that fashion, but it may be that it's not. And I think it's worth, but I think it's it was just worth clarifying that this is not a medicine which we can do whatever we want with. Um, not that that's really what we were saying. We weren't saying you could do whatever you want. Um, but it's yeah, it, it, it's not quite as clear as uh, as it first seemed. So we're going to go on to play the rest of the episode, and we're still going to talk about topical vasoconstrictors because, as you've said, Alex, the, the medicine is clear, and and you know it is absolutely uh, a tool that can be suitably used in the treatment of epistaxis, as we're going to discuss. However. If it's something that you want to utilize in your practice, you're not a prescriber and your employer doesn't have a particular direction suggesting it can be used in this manner. It's probably safer and probably puts you at less professional risk to uh, have a conversation with probably the receiving hospital and see if much like we're going to come on to talk about TXA, whether or not they would be comfortable making a uh, a verbal order to use adrenaline and uh, and then annotating your clinical record to make that point okay so hopefully we've clarified that point a little bit more let's get back to the podcast then and we're going to be talking about the use of topical adrenaline in this manner Uh, and we're going to rejoin just as we were having a discussion around mucosal atomization devices but one thing i did uh, see simon you you put a comment on our on Twitter recently um, about this particular subject and there was a comment one in 10,200 micrograms per nostril via MAD magic and actually I've never considered use of the the MAD the mucosal aerosol dispersal device for for delivering this but actually that's brilliant yeah certainly interesting something that I've never really thought of before I mean I like you Alex I think I've squirted some uh, adrenaline one in ten probably diluted it actually to one in a hundred thousand onto some gauze and then like inserted that up the nostril and then clamped over the top of it the standard you know your standard basic first aid measures that Josh already mentioned your teaspoons um, yeah, your teaspoons. <laughs> but um, I've uh, I've never never heard of uh, of Madden Madden adrenaline so um. Yeah, that might be something I I have to look into. Um, not something I I want to want to advocate uh, at this point, but something that I would definitely uh, think probably warrants some some more looking into. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm. If I had a difficult epistaxis, I, I would certainly consider giving it a go now. Now, now that it's kind of it's there in my mind. I mean, I, it's logical, I suppose. Like actually, in ED, the things you've already mentioned, like the phenylephrine spray, we actually do spray that up the nostril. So actually, it, it does completely make sense. So yeah, I think it's a great suggestion. It's something they're definitely going to look into. So, and that leads us nicely on to tranosamic acid, which is a drug that I'm sure every uh, pre-hospitalist listening to this podcast knows about. Uh, It's an anti-fibrinolytic agent, and it's routinely applied, obviously, or we give it IV, but um, it's used topically in healthcare settings globally for bleeding. Now, in the UK, TXA is a prescription-only medicine, and it currently, although hopefully this will change, but currently it is not in either Schedule 19 emergency exemptions or in the Schedule 17 paramedic exemptions under MHRA. And therefore, its use does require a PGD or a non-medical prescriber. Most ambulance PGDs for TXA don't include a topical use, so technically, autonomously, you can't use it for that. 
However, what I have done previously before I was a prescriber is to seek top cover. So this is basically where you probably on a recorded line telephone someone who is a non-medical prescriber, have a clinical conversation with them, and they effectively do you a verbal prescription over the phone, which they probably should then back up later. So differing trusts have got different access to senior cover. But if you do have prescribers on the end of the phone, it might be something that they can help with. Since we're talking about TXA, I'm sure we've probably mentioned this before, but just to highlight as well, since we're talking about the legalities of things here, it's just a reminder for people that TXA is in JR Calc, but it's not an exemption drug. Like you said, it's not in any of the schedules. So although it is in JR Calc, you're bound to the wording of your PGD, not what it says in JR Calc, because I know that's something that that often comes up when we when we discuss drug legislation and it is quite confusing but yeah i I think that's a really good a really good route around it if you can get top cover someone who's a prescriber you know particularly if you have got a bad bleed and you've got someone who who you're going to be conveying you could speak to the receiving hospital and see if they're willing to give you a a a verbal order for topical txa whack that in uh, up the nose for the journey and uh, by the time you've got there it may have done some good it will certainly save the ed having to try it so looking at the evidence around TXA and epistaxis, the results of the NOPAC trial were published relatively recently, and that study found that there was no statistically significant difference between TXA and a placebo in the case of, of stopping epistaxis. So those results would potentially argue that, that TXA doesn't have a part to play here. I think one of the main critiques of that study and one of the main problems I have with it is that the study protocol before being randomised to either a TXA or placebo arm, the epistaxis was first tried to be stopped with basic first aid measures, which sounds completely reasonable, but also they tried a topical vasoconstrictor prior to randomising them either way. And I'm not convinced that the addition of that topical vasoconstrictor prior to randomising to TXA or, or a placebo really means that the study answers the question that we would like answered. I think personally, I think it would be far more useful if they had either compared it to a topical vasoconstrictor or just compared TXA and a placebo after basic first aid measures only. I'm I'm not convinced that the study particularly answers the the question we'd want it to and and potentially there's, there's still some information that needs to be gained in this area before we completely write TXA off as there's a reasonable amount of evidence that shows that topical TXA does work in stemming bleeding in things like dentistry. So yeah, possibly one to watch. I think it's also probably worth mentioning. There is a difference between us talking about the legalities of doing this and and giving these medications and saying that you can give them and then going out and saying, well, just because you can go ahead and do it. If you're working outside of conventional ambulance service guidance in this situation, it's really important that you are content and understand the evidence base that you're using and and fully understand the medications that you're using. You know, as as always with all these things that we discuss, you are responsible for your own practice as a as a practitioner and the things that you're comfortable with. So just because we're talking about it now, you know, we're not saying go out and squirt adrenaline up uh, up everyone's nose, but it's certainly something to have a think about and um, to have some consideration of the evidence that is out there. Now, if those medicines don't work, don't make the difference, we're getting into the realm of uh, nasal packing and cautery. And Simon, as a as a former specialist paramedic, I think this is probably probably your uh, area of um, most relevant experience. Yeah, so obviously, um, you know, it might be something that your ECPs or I should call them specialist paramedics be able to offer. So if you have that service locally uh, to worth considering or obviously MIUs and emergency departments, it's, it's probably just worth being aware of these. So nasal packing, basically there's two common devices. You can use a Maricel tampon, which is lubricated and inserted in the nose, or what I prefer, and I think is much more common now, is a device called a rapid rhino. That comes in two sides. 
sizes there's an anterior one and a posterior one and basically those are soaked in saline for 30 seconds before insertion which activates a kind of clotting chemical on them uh, they're then inserted in the nose exactly the same as an mpa they've got a little um, pilot balloon on them like an, an et tube does and then you just inflate those up the nose and obviously that applies direct pressure to the bleeding area whether that's anterior or posterior depending on what size you use and obviously the next the other option would be cautery so that can be electronic but most most commonly it's silver nitrate uh, so we use silver nitrate sticks and if we can slow the bleeding down significant enough normally with the vasoconstrictors we we're just talking about we will then be able to visualize the bleeding vessel at little's area and then we will just be able to dab silver cautery on it on a single side of the nose and just kind of effectively burn the area so that it stops and cauterizes that bleed so it's just worth knowing those options are available so you can refer to them either through um, specialist paramedics or through your ed those are some of the options that are available some pre-hospitally mostly in hospitally for those difficult anterior bleeds what kind of treatments do posterior nosebleeds undergo Posterior bleeds, obviously, as I said, you can use the uh, largest size rapid rhino maybe to apply some compression. If that doesn't work, what you can do or, or what we do in hospital is you can insert a, a Foley catheter and basically you pass that down through the nasopharynx until you can see it in the back of the throat. You then inflate the balloon and then draw it backwards until it tamponades off the bleeding area. So that protects the, the airway and obviously also causes um, compression. But any posterior bleed, and to be honest, any anterior bleed that you've had to pack probably needs ENT input. So that would be a ENT referral. Some stable bleeds you can discharge and come back as it is a, the next day as an outpatient to ENT, but most will go across. And obviously anything posterior where or stuff that we haven't been able to control is likely then going to be going for a, a general anesthetic and surgery to to actually find that bleeding point and, and stop it with various surgeries. Okay, so let's talk about the admission and discharge decision. Well, admission we've mostly covered, and it's going to be pretty obvious. These are going to be the patients that we haven't managed to resolve the bleeding, and, and it's ongoing despite our first aid measures. All those patients that we suspect have a posterior bleed, so they're profusely bleeding from both nostrils, or they've got very clear channels of blood going down the back of their throat as well. If we're suspecting that it's a posterior bleed, then they need to go to hospital regardless because we aren't going to be able to control those with with first aid measures but let's say we have resolved the bleeding and uh, we're looking at a candidate that might be suitable for discharge if the bleeding is resolved if the epistaxis is controlled there's no particular need to admit them anywhere we do have to consider the reason for that bleeding. And so, as we've said, if it's one of those concerning presentations, they might have a coagulation disorder. It's one of those children in the under two categories and a non-accidental injury might be something that we're concerned about. Patients that have a suspected tumour, you know, there's there's potentially concerning presentations that we may need to take these patients to hospital, even though hemostasis has been achieved. And again, thinking of that elderly population, we need to give significant consideration to whether they are truly hemodynamically stable, whether they do have an element of shock. But let's consider some discharge advice. So patients that are suitable to be discharged at scene need to be offered self-care advice. This needs to be both written and verbally discussed with them. That's best practice, as we've discussed in our Discharging uh, Patients podcast. It's probably worth recommending to them that for at least 24 or maybe even 48 hours, certain activities need to be avoided. So obviously, picking and blowing the nose is going to be a big one. We don't want to disrupt those clots. You need to tell them that certainly for several hours, they need to really avoid blowing their nose or wiping their nose. And then as time goes on, little gentle wiping might be appropriate, but certainly avoid blowing the nose for the next 24 to 48 hours. They need to avoid drinking or eating anything that's likely to make them bleed again. So hot drinks, hot food, alcohol, spicy food, anything that's going to cause vasodilation to the face 
is going to increase the pressure in the nose and increase the risk of bleeding as well as in the context of hot food give them a runny nose which is going to increase the risk of disrupting that clot they need to avoid any heavy lifting or strenuous exercise so this is where our social history is important you need to find out what these patients do for work if they're still working and potentially advise that they don't go into work the next day thinking of the older population that like gardening there's a lot of getting down onto hands and knees there's a reasonable amount of heavy lifting that they may not consider strenuous so we need to be absolutely explicit with these patients Lying flat could potentially be problematic, so it might be worth that night particularly going to bed with a few extra pillows and trying to sleep upright ever so slightly, and crucially, avoiding hot baths and steamy showers for a good couple of days. Again, heat is going to cause vasodilation, which is going to increase the risk of bleeding. So we can also use this opportunity to uh, improve patients' knowledge of first aid measures. So now's a really good teachable moment to give some health promotion advice that will that will potentially avoid them needing an ambulance uh, if they re-bleed or the next time they have a nosebleed. So anything that they were doing wrong when you arrived, we'll use this opportunity to discuss it with them. If you've used the nasal clip, which I really hope you have, leave that with them. If you've used their spoons, maybe suggest that they don't unbind their spoons for a couple of days until we know that they're a bit more out of the woods from risk of re-bleeding. Uh, and we need to advise them again if they start to re-bleed. Try these first aid measures before they either start to attend hospital or call us. However, that's tailored to the patient and it might be your clinical impression that if they do start re-bleeding, you prefer them to call us straight away. So that's most of the discharge advice that I think is appropriate for this patient. There's a couple of little things that we just want to, to mop up that we're calling pitfalls. So Alex, do you want to discuss some of the, the, the little things that we don't want to avoid with these patients? Yeah, I think mopping up is, um, is the correct term given that we're talking about uh, blood loss um hey, also hey, I, I, <laughs> hey, I do the puns here all right oh <laughs> uh, one day you'll let me uh, you'll let me do one um <laughs> 100th episode if we if we get that far you can do the it's gonna be all puns um, <laughs> um i've completely forgotten where i was going oh i remember what i was gonna say so if, I, I feel like i should um i should stick up for nasal clips as well because we're doing a lot of talking uh about teaspoons and uh and lollipop sticks and uh, tongue depressors and things like that um but also you know many services actually have proper nasal clips which are which i've always found very good so i'm just you know shout out to uh to nasal clips but yeah pitfalls and well there's not really very many with with epistaxis it's, it's usually fairly simple they're they're often a self-limiting presentation but as i said before just be aware of your of your own bias it can be life-threatening in the right or the wrong depending on how you look at it uh circumstances so don't don't dismiss epistaxis make sure that pressure is applied in the right place so that is the soft area at the the anterior the front portion of the nose not the bony bridge of the nose and don't release the nasal pressure too quickly nice guidelines and, and most textbooks recommend 10 to 15 minutes but uh josh uh has, has already said that you know ultimately you're going to be looking more around sort of 20 minute mark just to make sure that we're not disturbing any clotting that's taking place and undoing all of our hard work and really the last thing to mention in terms of things not to not to miss is assessing the patient after the epistaxis to, to check for subtle signs of shock particularly in the older patients they may show signs of a postural drop after a fairly small degree of blood loss it doesn't have to be hugely dramatic in terms of volume to actually affect their hemodynamic status if they are a person who uh, who has a fairly low blood blood volume anyway in those cases, the bleeding may well have resolved, but they may need transport to hospital anyway, particularly if they're showing signs of anemia, if they're feeling dizzy, or if they're just not fully recovered from this episode of, uh, of epistaxis, because there is a potential that they, they may need group and saves and, and even transfusions. And on the topic of, of blood tests as well, I've, I've heard people dealing with epistaxis talk about transporting people on the basis of that the, the they may need that they may need bloods now i think that's all well and good if the patient is symptomatic but lab investigations aren't usually required unless you suspect an underlying cause or if the patient is unstable and a full blood count 
should only really be considered if the patient has been bleeding heavily recurrently for a long time or if you do suspect anemia as i said if they if they are pale if they have any other signs of anemia or if they're unwell and in terms of coagulation studies they're only really needed if you suspect a clotting disorder okay that's a pretty good summary alex but uh let's do it properly let's summarize Incidents of epistaxis have remained quite similar over the years, being more common in winter and having a bimodal distribution in prevalence, with a trend towards older generations. 85-90% to of epistaxis originate from the anterior aspect of the nose, and this should be easily controlled with simple first aid measures. But in some patients, there may be an arteriovenous pedicle responsible for severe anterior bleeding. A small percentage of very severe bleeds may be posterior in nature and will probably require urgent ED attendance. Examination in history isn't as simple as looking at them and saying, oh, they've got a nosebleed. As always, we need to be taking a good history take, asking about the quantity and frequency of bleeding, as well as asking those important questions to determine whether or not there are any concerning differentials that are the cause of the epistaxis. Treatment and management is normally going to be managed by really good first aid measures. Remember, this involves a good preparation stage, removing any of the old clots that aren't allowing us to get good pressure, applying a good period of direct pressure for at least 10 minutes, but more like 20, with a strong hand or the use of a nasal clip, tongue depressor device, or teaspoon nasal clip, trademark pending. We've discussed some of the pharmacological options that might be available to us, including adrenaline and tranexamic acid. But as we've said, just because we can use these things doesn't mean we necessarily should, and we need to ensure that we're using them correctly in an appropriately governed system. Some of these patients might require nasal packing and cautery, which might be available from a specialist paramedic in urgent and emergency care, or from a local MIU. It doesn't always necessarily mean going to A&E. If we can't resolve this bleeding pre-hospitally, then we need to take them in for appropriate management. But if we have, and we're happy that they're suitable for discharge we need to be giving these patients solid discharge advice and written and verbal self-care advice but that's it for this month thanks very much for joining us as always our references and summary points are going to be on our website generalbroadcast.org.uk if you like the podcast please please share us so share us on twitter write us a review on the itunes store it really does help keep this podcast going and keep it free for for all of you if you like the free cbd that we're putting out there but as i say that's all for this month thanks very much and we'll see you next time